if you're able to stand and turn in your Bibles to the New Testament, to John chapter 7. That's going to be, if you're using the Blue Pew Bible, that is page 1062. Our first scripture reading is just going to be a short reading from John 7, verses 37 through 39. And after reading this passage, we will then turn to our main scripture passage and sermon text in Hebrews chapter 8. Let me remind you, as we hear God's word, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. So let's give it our careful and diligent attention. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here ends our first reading of Scripture. Amen. Now let me encourage you to turn to our second Scripture reading and our sermon passage for this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 8. We are going to be reading the entirety of the chapter, verses 1 through 13. The book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. 
The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Please be seated. And let's pause once again briefly to seek the Lord's illumination on his word. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the word. We thank you for breathing it out. So much, so much would be lost to us. We would be lost without your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Our God, we cannot understand the Bible apart from your active help. And so we pray that as we turn to the preaching of your word, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would help not just the one who is speaking, but all of us to be relying on your Spirit to illuminate these words, these words of life. And we ask that by your power they would be pressed into us and that our lives would be transformed. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you think about your life, and as I think about my life, I wonder if any of us have ever had the experience of wishing that you could go back in time. You ever wish that you could go back in time to a different portion of your life, a special time and place perhaps, and it could be different for each one of us what might be the particular attraction. Maybe there was just a special time in your life where you felt like things were really good. Maybe it was, had something to do with where you lived. Maybe it had something to do with where you went to school or where you worked, depending on your age. Some of us are younger than others. Some of us are older than others. Maybe it had something to do with a special community or a group, friend group, church group, whatever, social group that, that you were connected with at that time. Do you have a particular favorite when you think of the seasons that your life has passed through already? Do you? It's not a uniquely Christian phenomenon, is it? In fact, our culture always is talking about time travel movies. You know, you ever realize how popular that is? It's a recurring leitmotif in science fiction, the idea of time travel. And not just in science fiction, not just for nerds, myself included, but even in popular culture, one of the most popular songs from, from before I was born, I think, Glory Days by Bruce Springsteen. How many of you have heard that song? It's all about looking back to that particular time or place or season where things were supposed to be better than they are now. And it's not just that. There are, there are movies that talk about this. About 10 years ago, there was a movie that came out that I'm, I can't recommend, so I'm not going to tell you the title. But, but, the, but the, the core idea of the movie was that certain people as, that were members of a certain family could actually travel back in time within their own lifetimes and relive or replay certain things. So it's not just a, a Christian desire, but many people have this desire. We, we as human beings, we want to, to look back to that time or that place or that group of people that were really meaningful to us. And this is an especially strong desire, I think, whenever our present time, place, or community is discouraging. Isn't that true? That temptation is even stronger when things around you now are not what you hoped they would be. 
question I want to ask as we launch into this text today is what should we make of those kind of feelings? Maybe we tend to think, well, they're just harmless, right? But what if they're not just harmless? What if there is an aspect to them that can be dangerous? You see, the, the recipients of this letter, the Hebrews Christians, the Jewish background believers, they were in a, a similar boat, if you think about the differences between their culture and ours. These were people who, who had been facing some disappointments. They were being persecuted for the sake of following Jesus. They were being ostracized by their family, by their culture. And they were therefore strongly tempted to return to the glory days when they were part and a recognized part of the Jewish community, where things were easier. There weren't so many disappointments. People welcomed them into their homes. People weren't stealing their property. They had legal protections, all of which they had lost for the sake of Jesus. But all of the letter of Hebrews, I hope something that we've seen as we've gone through this, all of the letter of Hebrews is written to dissuade them, to encourage them to keep following Jesus, and to warn them that going back and always looking back is a tragic and wrong move. We saw this especially last week as we looked at Hebrews chapter 7 where we saw that the Old Testament itself through this mysterious figure of Melchizedek and the prophecy of him returning in some sense, a new priest after the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110. But we saw that the Old Testament itself was telling the readers of the Old Testament that the Old Testament cannot stand alone. It all must land on Jesus. And therefore, to go back would be to betray the Word of God. And the writer of the Hebrews is going to pick up on the same thread now in Hebrews chapter 8. He's going to be pulling on that same line And we're going to see here in chapter 8 the longest Old Testament quotation in the book of Hebrews, which is now not from the Psalms, but from the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And you might ask, well, what is the point of him quoting this long passage here? Well, we're told, actually, right after he quotes it in verse 13, that in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete is ready to vanish away. In other words... Christians, you cannot go back, and you therefore must not pine for the past. Now, how does this connect to us today? Well, things are different. Specifics may differ a little bit. We are probably not ourselves, individually, particularly drawn toward Judaism. I think that's probably a fair observation. Nevertheless, there is a timeless temptation for each of us to always want to go back to a period in the past, a different time, a different place, the so-called glory days. And it can begin, brothers and sisters, even in your youth. And so I'm not just talking to the middle-agers and those who are older. I'm talking to all of us. You know, the first time I think I ever remember feeling this was when I was in the second grade. When I went from first to second grade, I had to change schools. That's hard. Have you ever have to do that? It's like change schools, change church, change place you live. It's not easy. You feel like you're starting over and there is that strong temptation, especially as things are not what you had hoped, to want to go back, to want to go back. And so it's not just a temptation for those of us who are 40 or above. It's a danger for all of us, all of you, all of me. And the danger is this. We're going to unpack this. But the danger is this. 
when you are living in the past, you are missing some really important things. You are missing God's presence, you are missing God's work, and you are missing God's power in the present. And you, by doing that, you will not just discourage your hearts, you will rob your lives of the power of the Spirit. And so we need to look at this this morning, and we need to see why, how Scripture itself teaches us through this issue, how it teaches us to look at the past, how it teaches us to look at the present, and how it teaches us to look toward the future. And so kids, if you've got your outlines, that's where we're going to go. I know the sermon title on the outline is different from the sermon title in the bulletin. That is not the secretary's fault. That is my fault. Um, But we are going to start by looking at how Scripture shows us that the past is what we might call a a shadow land. And the first thing, the first thing to notice from the text, and we'll, we'll draw it out here, is that the good things of the past, whether it was a particular time, a place, a season, or an event, or just things you had, the good things of the past were not bad, but they were shadows. Look at how the author brings us to this here in the beginning of chapter 8. Like a good teacher, he pauses every so often to summarize. And we see this right here at the beginning of chapter 8. He says, now the point in what we are saying. Don't you appreciate that about the writer to Hebrews? Hebrews is a pretty dense book. Especially as you get into chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, it starts to get kind of dense. And so he pauses after chapter 7 and says, now the point in what we are saying is this. What does he say? We have such a high priest, one who has passed through the heavens. And he goes on in the next couple of verses just to reiterate what we emphasized last week, that Jesus did and Jesus does what no other priest in history, in any culture, could do. He can make us perfect. And in doing this, he's really drawing together the whole argument of the whole letter, This has been his his intentional pattern from the beginning of Hebrews to show us that Jesus is better than what? First of all, Jesus is better than the angels. Remember that? Chapter 1. Jesus is therefore better than the law. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is the true human being, the one who truly rules heaven and earth. Jesus is the one who brings us true rest. He is going to lead us into a rest that was greater than Israel ever experienced after the exodus. And then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, and even into this one, he is the true high priest because only Jesus can make us perfect. And his point is what? The whole Old Testament, all of the scriptures that came before the coming of Jesus were pointers to him. They were kaleidoscopic fragments of the gospel pointing forward to the work of Jesus. Our Confession of Faith talks about this in chapter 7. I'm just going to read you a little quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, Under the law, the gospel was administered, or manifested, revealed, by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover lamb, and other things. All of which were prefiguring Christ to come. And all of which were for the time sufficient because the Holy Spirit used them to build up God's people to faith in the promised Messiah. The whole Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. And so our first point and the first point of the author here is not that the Old Testament is bad, but look at what he says in verse 5. That the Old Testament was a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. 
And he's talking specifically about what the priests do in the temple and the tabernacle, but it really could be applied to all of these aspects. They were copies and they were shadows of greater realities that were coming. And now that the fulfillment has come, verse 13 tells us that the shadows must vanish away. And so the good things of the past were not bad, but they were shadows. And my friends, this is true not just with Old Testament worship, but it is true with everything, everything in your life and in my life. I mentioned this already, but I'll say it again. I know that you're not tempted to turn to Judaism, as far as I know. But all of us, I do know, are tempted by those past times, by those past places, by those past communities, by those past people. All of us, if we really were honest, could think of it. I remember where the glory days really were. And we're all tempted to look back to some other time and think that was better. I wish that hadn't changed. I wish things hadn't gone the way they've gone. That's true of all good things. But it's also true, this what he, what he says about the, the Old Testament tabernacle, that it was a shadow and a copy. That's also true of all the good things you're thinking of. What does Psalm 16 tell us? We have no good apart from God, but that the ultimate good is connected to what? The presence of God at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. And so the best things of this life are but prefigures of the future goodness of God. In other words, you cannot separate any gift, any time, any place, any people from the whole story that God is telling with your life. C.S. Lewis says that any given moment, the good things in your life are what he calls patches of God light. But what happens? Have you ever, you ever seen a sunbeam coming down through a dusty window or through, the, through a canopy in the, in the woods? If you actually turn away from the source of the light and step between it and try to focus on that patch that landed, what happens? You interrupt the light and you can no longer see the good. The same thing is true here. You cannot separate God's past gifts from his present and from his future working. And maybe the point isn't 100% clear yet, but we're going to unpack it further. The bottom line is this. Just at the temptation that these believers were feeling in Hebrews, to look at the past, to look at what God had done in the past and think that was better, is the same temptation you and I experience when we are pining for the glory days or wish that we could travel back to a different time, place, people. You cannot separate God's work in the past from the whole story he is telling with your life. Number three, one of the recurring themes of the book of Hebrews. I hope by the, by the end of our time together in the book of Hebrews later this summer that this will be echoing in your heads. You might get annoyed even after I'm gone and into my next call. like Montgomery just always would say this. It's so annoying. I can hear his voice. Yeah, I know. But number three, the recurring theme of the book of Hebrews in all things is that Christ's work now is better than in the past. The writer makes this very clear in verse 6. Look at what he says. He says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. You, you see how many times he's using this idea? More excellent a better covenant, better promises. And that word better is literally in Greek, more good. Or if I, I, I'm from Appalachia, so I can use an Appalachianism, gooderer. It's not that the old was bad. 
it's that the new is better. It's not that, it's not that the new is just good, but it's going to take us further up, further in. And that's why he quotes from the prophecy of Jeremiah in verses 7 through 12. And the point he, overall point he's making is the second section of our sermon, that the best days yet in the history of the world, and that means in the history of your life, the best days yet are not days in the past, they are these days. Now, how do we see that? What he's saying here, there's, a, there's kind of a three-step here. Number four on your outlines. Why are the best days yet these days? Because, number four, Christ's work in the world today is greater than in any past time. Do you believe that? That Christ Jesus' work in the world today is greater than at any time in history? You see, for all the glory of the Old Testament, the Red Sea, the conquest, Solomon, etc., all the glory days, Israel still failed. They broke the covenant. So instructive for us in so many ways. Just as a quick aside, you know, modern people think that the real problem with humanity is that they don't have enough education, they don't have enough resources. That's baloney. The story of Israel is the counterexample. They had, you want to talk about education, they had a perfect law from heaven itself. You want to talk about resources, they had a land flowing with milk and honey, a perfect place, all the resources they needed, perfect instruction, and they still failed. Israel's problem is the human problem, and it's not ignorance or poverty. It is that our hearts are bent in on themselves. We have selfish, self-centered, sinful hearts. But God's solution for Israel is also the solution for all people, is that He will make a new covenant. And this is the, the famous passage from Jeremiah's prophecies, quoted in verses 8 through 12, the promise of a new covenant. Well, what's going to change? The heart of the new covenant is the promise that God will give you and I and all who believe in Him a new heart. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. In other words, the Spirit of God is going to be poured out and poured into people at the very deepest level. The idea that God will be rewiring your heart and mind and thoughts and affections. It's not just the writer of the Hebrews who says it. It's not just the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel, a very famous passage, Hebrews, yeah, Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart, says the Lord, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes. And that first scripture reading that we read from John 7, where Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds the explanatory comment. He was talking about the spirit. This is something that we tend, perhaps, especially in a tradition that, that more emphasizes the intellectual understanding, which is not bad. But it, it's perhaps something we underemphasize, which is the work, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, working with and through the Word, animating us, changing us, re, as, as Scripture here says, writing God's laws on our minds, rewiring us from the inside out at the deepest level. It's not that the Holy Spirit was completely absent from the Old Testament. 
David says in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. First Peter says that the Spirit worked through the prophets. Yet when it comes to the New Testament, the outpouring of the Spirit is wider, fuller, deeper. And brothers and sisters, to the point, since Pentecost, since the day of Pentecost, the church through history and around the world has been growing. It has been growing. That prophecy of Daniel, that the stone cut from no, by no human hands would grow into a mountain that fills the earth, has been and is being fulfilled. The church is expanding globally, numerically, but also going further up and further in, growing deeper in understanding, growing, growing deeper in our love for the Lord. Christ's work is greater every day. This isn't wishful thinking, number five. Because maybe some of us look around and say, well, that sounds like wishful thinking. It's not. It is new covenant believing. And maybe you struggle to believe it. Maybe you look around and you look kind of at the local level or at the national level and you say, well, I see all I see is a culture in decline. How can God's work be greater today than ever before? Well, my friend, when we, when we make that statement in that light, we are, we are we're smuggling in a hidden, a hidden assumption. What's the hidden assumption? When, we, when I look at my society, our society, and we say it's just declining, how can Christ's work really be greater? What are we, what are we assuming? We're assuming that when God says they will be my people, that he's actually talking about our culture. But he's not talking about our culture. He's not talking about any one geopolitical entity, even our beloved nation where we live. No. My people is the global church, the church of history, the church that transcends every culture. And there is ample and evident proof that Christ's work is greater than at any time in history if you simply look beyond our borders and look to the global work of Christ. One example that I've cited for many of you many times, and this is just one example, but it gives you a flavor. In 1949, when the Communist Party of China took over the mainland of China and proclaimed the People's Republic, so-called, of China, there were about a million Christians in that land. Seventy-odd years later, under communist rule, with no privilege from the government, with no help from that atheistic, totalitarian regime, there are probably more than 70 million Christians in that land. You don't, you don't even need to look that far to see that what we're saying is absolutely true, that at a global level, when you think of the work of Christ as a whole, the work of Jesus is greater today than at any point in history. The church has a greater understanding. Think about the early church. We, we had early church history a couple months ago, we talked about all the heresies and all the problems that cropped up. But as the church went on through history, guided by the Spirit, bound to the Word, they grew in understanding. It's not just missionary numerical growth. It is spiritual deepening and understanding. And it's not just true at a group level, but at a personal and individual level as well. And so all of what we're saying is not just meant to encourage us but also to convict us individually. And that brings us to number six. My friends, there is a great danger for each of us, including myself, but including all of you as well, that when we sit around longing for the past, we are implicitly doubting God's greatest promise. The greatest promise that God poured out here through the prophet Jeremiah, 
that he would pour out his spirit and that once the spirit began a good work in you, he would not stop, that every day he would be writing his law on your minds more and more, taking you further up and further in. That promise has teeth. And what it means is that every day as a Christian is a better day than the day before. Every day you follow Jesus is the best day of your life, even when it's hard. And when we sit around pining for the past, whether we're first century Jewish background believers or whether we're 21st century American believers here in Ohio, anytime we sit around pining for the glory days, we are saying that God's work in the past was better than it is right now, and we are implicitly doubting and denying this promise. It's not just a problem for groups. All of us do this. It wasn't just a problem for me when I switched schools in the second grade. It's still an ongoing temptation. You know, many times after my family went, to, went overseas and then after we had to leave from our place overseas, lots of opportunity to wonder, was there a past period that was better? Boy, I wish things had gone differently. Maybe some of you have had similar experiences in different contexts. We all do this. But when we do this, we are doubting the promise of the new covenant. Nothing less. You are saying that God's work in the past was better, but God says his work in the past is better. Do you believe that the Father and the Son poured out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? Do you believe what the, what the New Testament says, that that Spirit who lives in every believer is renewing us, not just once in a while, but day by day? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Being renewed day by day. If you believe that the Spirit is working and renewing you day by day, then you should never, ever want to go back even by one day. Because that would be to roll back God's story in your life. That would be saying, I want less work of God in my life. I want less work of the Spirit. If the Spirit is working on me every single day, and you say, I want to go back, you're saying, I want less work of the Spirit. Is that what you want? I hope that we would all say no. But I know that when we pine for those past times, that is what we are implying. And we must not do that. Because leaning into God's future is infinitely better than pining for God's past. Because the future is going to be unimaginably good. Number seven on your outlines, kids. The prophecy of Jeremiah written for us here in Hebrews 8 was not just for the first century, but it's, it's for today. The new covenant didn't stop at the day of Pentecost. The work of the Holy Spirit didn't end when the New Testament was finished. That promise of an ever-deepening knowledge and experience of the love and presence and power of God is ongoing to every Christian. And that's number eight. It wasn't just for special prophets this promise was made. This promise that we're seeing here in the, in the quotation from Jeremiah is for every Christian. Look at verse 11. It's right there. I'm not making it up. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why not? For they shall all know me. How many believers will have the experience of the Spirit under the New Testament? All of us. All of us. From the least to the greatest. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are Christian believers, do you believe that Jesus Christ, by His Holy Spirit, is writing on your heart every day. Do you believe He's writing on your heart even now, day by day, writing more on your heart? Do you believe that? Then can you understand how pining for the past will rob you of power? It robs you of power 
because it distracts you from seeking more of him now. That psalm that we recited earlier in the service. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That is looking toward God's future. That is saying, I want more of you. But when you are stuck in the past, you are denying your, ask, your part and seeking the Lord. And our sanctification is something in which our response plays a role. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Yes, God is working, but you have a responsibility. And when you are looking at the past rather than looking at God's future, when you are whining about what happened yesterday or pining for it, and rather than seeking to grow in love and knowledge and experience of God, now you are robbing yourself of the power. You are impoverishing your own future. So that's a challenge to us who believe. Some of us here today, though, may, may not be believers at this point. And if there are any, or online, who are listening, I guess my challenge to you is this. Do you dare to test the claims of this prophecy? Those of you who do not yet believe and say, I don't believe this stuff, it can't be real. Well, I dare you to pray and ask God to begin writing his law in your hearts and see what happens. Do you dare that? Don't say you're honestly seeking if you're not willing to put a little bit of skin in the game. Brothers and sisters, the good news, the good news from this passage is simply this, and it really is good news. Jesus did not live and die and rise again to leave us stuck in the past. Jesus lived and died and rose again so that every day he could take us further up and further into his goodness. And as you believe that, and as you really lean into that, it will change your life. Number nine, this is the last thing. You will lose your longing for the past as you remember that Jesus is writing more on your heart every day. Amen. Let us pray. Our God, it is a strong temptation that we all face our songs, the songs of our culture witness to it, our films witness to it, our own lives and consciences witness to it, that each of us is so tempted, just as the first century Christians were, to look for some better time in the past, to look for some place that was safer, more comfortable, more respectable, more enjoyable. So we too are tempted in the same way. Help us, though, to remember that your promises lean us toward your future that your work is ongoing and that it is contiguous and that we cannot ever separate any moment of the past from your whole story in our lives. Help us to lean, therefore, into your future, trusting you, Jesus, with all the things that are hard, relying on you to guide us by your word and spirit through the challenges that may yet come. But help us to also believe the promise and rejoice that you are writing on our hearts more and more every day. We ask this in your name. Amen.